Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening and welcome to Done By Law on 3CR 8.55am and welcome to those listening via 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. It's literally on 6 o'clock. I think it's the first time we've actually managed to chime in on 6 o'clock. And you're here with Gemma and Daniel. How are you going, Gemma? I'm very well, thank you. Daniel, how are you? I'm I'm feeling good. You've Um, you've done very well. I've had a few days off, but... um... Thanks for, Cat's doing out of the bag the, now. thanks for doing the hard work. <laughs> not uh, at all, not at all. Um, tonight we'll start as usual with some news in brief um, and then we'll be joined by Gabrielle Watson-Munro from West Justice uh, and from Sarah who has worked in kitchens as a chef and every other possible kitchen role across the hospitality industry in Melbourne for the last 10 years or so. But first, Daniel, you're going to take us through some news in brief. Yes, I'll try and keep it very brief. But um, some things that have caught my eye this week, um, interesting uh, report from former Justice Anthony North of Mm. the Federal Court, Mm. who's now been appointed the Victorian Law Reform Commission Chairman. Correct. Um, But uh, a report published by him about the air traffic control services industry um, and what is going on there yeah. is quite damning. Um, a lot of sexual harassment mm. reported, um, workplace um, harassment as well in other mm. forms is being mm. reported and it doesn't sound like a lot is happening. There's not even a, a policy as I understand it, at some some workplaces, yeah. uh, that, which he's identified as just a massive oversight, you know, at least have some sort of policy. Yeah. Even yeah. if you're not going to um, abide by the policy, you know, you'd think you'd just have one still. Most places at least have that. Yeah. As, as an employer, it's really important to have those kind of protections in place and so that we can set, re- you know, standards of what, what employees are expected to to abide by. It's I, I read that article as well and I thought it was really um concerning particularly about i guess um the the scope of the of of what he was reporting and it was all across air traffic control um centers across the country it wasn't just in one particular state so it's kind of interesting to try and figure out how these cultures are pervasive and it's not necessarily even location based if even employee even employer has a a practice which is particularly uh, concerning, then somehow that can kind of infect, I guess, workplaces across across the board, which is really worrying. Yeah, I mean, and what it I think it also means is you got to think what's going on in one of the most important workplaces um, for the general public. Um, yeah. You don't realise how important that role is. I mean, these are people that are controlling um, flights that mm. everyone's on, and you got to yeah. make sure everything's. I mean. Um, 
That's if right. If things aren't going well there, it could end um, very, very badly. <laughs> very bad. Well, that's right. That was what the article was saying, wasn't it? It was saying that, um, you know, Justice North, or former Justice North, I should say, was, was going so far as to say this actually could jeopardise safety, uh, which the air traffic control... Um, Board, uh, what I forget the cor- the correct name for it, was was up really up in arms about and really um, said that it, it certainly wasn't a matter of public safety. Um, but yeah, I mean, those it does it does make you think and makes you question when when you've got a, a workplace that has something that that appears to be so problematic. Um, it, it doesn't make you feel terribly safe getting click click clacked into your plane when you fly. Yeah, your emergency <laughs> exits are here and here. That's the Air Services Australia is the federal government body. Thank you. That I believe you're looking for. So what's happening? Well, um, I believe the Sex Discri- Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick will be um, investigating these allegations and there will be more news to come. Interesting. For sure. Okay, we'll um, keep a keep a watch on that one. Yes. So, uh, any other news? Well, um, interestingly, I noticed if you're a basketball fan, yes, um, you would definitely know that uh, Ben Simmons is in town. Yes. Um, but apparently, the Crown Casino staff aren't. Yes. Well, I, I didn't actually realise, but apparently, Ben Simmons is the most successful Australian athlete or um, sports person of all time if you go by their deal. Um, yeah, he has like he makes a lot of money. million dollar deal. He's 23 years old. Um, I think he's originally from Melbourne. Um, yeah. Uh, and he's back here visiting um, and went to Crown Casino with a few of his mates um, and shared on Instagram a story uh, where he indicated that he feels that he was racially profiled by the staff at, at Crown trying to get into the facility um, there. Yeah, um, um, interesting as well. He's taken the story down. I yeah, believe. he did so, take the story down, um, and Crown um, strenuously deny it. I should say as well. Um, but it does raise really interesting questions about uh, what we know is is commonly referred to as implicit um, bias um, in in profiling of of these kinds of. Um, particularly of, of um, young black men in particular, where there's an inco- unconscious bias to connect to criminality uh, with, I guess, um, the assumption that that's what, that, that is what is going on. Um, now, clearly, there's, there's, there's more to the story. Both sides are pretty adamant as to what, what happened. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have seen um, many uh, in-depth research um, Reports that have shown that their implicit or unconscious bias is actually uh, really common because it's it's people don't even know they're doing it, so it's also really hard to prove and it's really hard to address. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what um, if Ben chooses to take this further um, and if Crown will look into the incident further and if we can hear more about what happened there. Yeah, well, I think what it um what sometimes things like these these kind of issues discriminatory discrimination issues need is someone in a position of um serious um public profile yeah like ben simmons yeah. to bring it to the forefront yeah of absolutely the, of the discourse so yeah yeah there we go Confusing and brief thanks <laughs> That's, Daniel. that was brief um so Gemma, what's happening now? now so let's kick along to the to i guess like the main bite of the episode today where we're really going to be trying to take a, a, 
a more in-depth look into wage theft. Um, last week, George Calambaris, the famous chef and owner of several hospitality businesses and fine dining restaurants, was fined over $200,000 for his mistake in underpaying his employees over um, $7.8 million um, in pay and entitlements. Uh, the millions of underpayment um, admitted by George Calambaris might be eye-watering for the extraordinary size of the rip-off carried out across the group's restaurants, but it sadly reflects a business-as-usual across the hospitality sector. A series of audits conducted by Fair Work in 2016 revealed that almost 58% of hospitality businesses, that's cafes and restaurants, were stealing wages. That's potentially hundreds of thousands of cases of what has been coined wage theft, a term first used by unions to describe the practice of paying workers less than they are entitled to under Australia's workplace relations system. So when we talk about wage theft, we, we, actually, we also should remember that it's not just one sort of pay. Wage theft can include underpaying wages, but also penalty rates, superannuation, superannuation overtime, commissions and entitlements like sick, annual or carer's leave, or requiring workers to repay um, money earned or making unauthorised deductions from employee pay. It can also mean some shifty practices which obscure how much work is done. For instance, while some staff might be paid above award, which means above the minimum required standard set for that industry by law, the restaurant might, might require excessive unpaid overtime. That can push the actual wage down to well below $15 an hour. Together, these practices have, according to some, become a standard business model. So what the hell is happening in our kitchens? Why is this industry seemingly so much worse than others? Tonight we are joined by two guests in the studio, Sarah and Gabrielle. Gabrielle is a senior lawyer at West Justice, a community organisation that provides free legal help to people in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And Sarah has worked as a chef in Melbourne kitchens and around Australia, having emigrated from South America almost 10 years ago. Sarah and Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Done By Law. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, I'll start with you, if that's okay. Sarah, when you read about the George Calambaris um, issue in the news, what did it make you feel? Well, it doesn't really make me feel much, as in this is something that kind of happens every year with a new different business, mm. you know, in the low-paging wages mm. scheme, like it was 7-Eleven last year. Yes. Um, yeah. a pie Face mm. was into the, the thing at some point. This is not news, watching him crying on the television and getting a slap on the wrist, you know, doesn't provoke you many feelings. It's just another day mm. into hospital. Yeah. So it just reminded you of, I guess, what, what's going on in, in your industry. Oh, my industry, it's uh, plagued with um, bad practices um, mm. where this is for, for chefs, for um People that work hospitality, I think, around Melbourne, this is not news. Mm. Um, what is news is the reaction that this case have had among other people. And now I have friends of mine asking me if it's true or not that this is the conditions that we work in. Okay, so it seems to have sparked some interest, I guess, amongst hospitality workplaces about what they're entitled to. Yeah, this case was particularly big. Okay, that's um, really good. So it's got people talking. It's been a couple of weeks since then, and we're talking in the radio right now. So Yeah. It's been going. It's starting to have a ripple effect. Yes, um, hopefully go somewhere. 
And when you said before these kinds of practices are common in hospitality workplaces, can you talk to us about what those practices are? What are the kinds of kinds of ways that uh, you've seen, I, I guess? Okay, in Melbourne you still see a lot of cash-in-hand work, mm. a lot, um, especially for front-of-the-house waitress um, in back of house, especially in small cafes, but also happens in small businesses in the city that they sell high volume mm. of food, street food. Um, you see very often for chefs, for example, that you get uh, locked into a salary mm. and your extra hours are not locked in. Mm. And it's normal for chefs to do anything in between 10 to 25 hours of extra hours a week, and in some cases even more. Wow. Um, in a workplace that I work for, I was um, I clocked in 120 hours in my first two weeks. My gosh, yeah, that's Whoa. huge. That's 60 hour weeks. Mm. That's 12 hours a day. Mm. Um, that is very normal. Mm. Shifts of 12 hours are quite normal. Split shifts are also normal. Um, in the kitchen, there is a culture of working really hard. That's yeah. uh, been the case for many, many years. So this overtime of what do you consider reasonable or time or what the world considers reasonably overtime, chefs would consider just another day yeah. at work. Sarah, this, this culture of working really hard that you speak of, um, is this something that you have been raised with throughout your career? Well, absolutely. Like when you are training to be as a chef, the culture inside up, like, Everyone has read it in Anthony, Anthony Bourdain's mm. um, Kitchen Confidential. Mm. Get it's pretty widespread read. But um, yeah, you <laughs> there is a culture about you know being the best. You have to train people to be able to endure twelve hours inside a kitchen and producing high volume of food at very high um, in very high quality. Yeah, and to be able to produce it at the same time every time. So you. Basically, you work a line inside a kitchen. There is a culture of it's a military organization. You got the head chef, you got the sous chef, you got the different sections, um, and and there is a culture of like the more dockets we can punch out tonight, the mm. harder we work, the longer hours we have, the better chefs we are. Mm. Um, we yes. work at ungodly hours, mm. you know. Uh, there was a job that I had for a pub that I used to get up. I don't know, it was an hour and a bit to get to the place and I start at 10 o'clock in the morning and finish at about in, anywhere between 9.30 and a very slow night to 11.30 or midnight and a very busy night. Mm. Um, that's a split shift though. So in between, you're supposed to be working between 10 and 3 and then you got another shift in between 5 and 10. But, you know, even in the award, you're, you you got a lot one hour in or one hour before to get sent home or to go back. The hospital award, it's quite open. Yeah, I see. For owners. Mm. And so, um, and if you have a split shift and then you finish at three and then you're meant to hang around until your other shift starts only a couple of hours later, it doesn't really give you much flexibility, does it? No, in this particular place I had in between three and five or three and 5.30, I think. And um, in two and a half hours, I didn't manage to go anywhere and come back. Like you would go to a gym close by if you can. But if you had a busy service in the morning, then you might want to stay back and just like do some prep for your night service because... Mm. You don't want to get slammed and, you know, like it's... It's just easier to even just carry on through. <clears throat> yeah, it's a very, like, in the kitchen you need a lot of discipline to keep it to keep it running. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we're constantly saying, like, prior preparation prevents poor failure. Like, it's a very strict one. So, yeah, re answering your question and coming back, 
Yeah, it's often that you're just sitting down there and you got the head chef telling you like, yeah, that's not good enough. You got to push harder, go mm. better. Like that's that shit. And like, there's a culture of sorry, mm. there is a culture of uh, harassment. We are we refer ourselves as pirates, you know. Mm. Um, <laughs> a normal day in a kitchen would be three hundred dozen lawsuits in an office about the way that we speak to each other. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Thank you for putting that in context for me. That sounds horrendous. <laughs> well, um, if you read Anthony Bourdain, which is, you know, again, I, I'm citing him because it's a good way that the yeah. general public can go and check these things. It's been romanticizing the idea yeah. of this. But, um, yeah, you're, everyone in the kitchen, it's like a sailor. We swear yeah. like sailors. We talk, we're in 70 degrees. Yeah. So that but, culture just sort of creates this really mm-hmm. also sounds like a kind of a broy culture as well. Um, it, it, it's a bro culture, yeah. yeah. Every girl that works in a kitchen has to be really tough. Yeah. Um, yep. And they're all quite proud to be tough. Yeah. We're all very proud to be tough. We're mm. proud to be able to work so many hours in a row. We're proud to be able to take the heat. We're proud to be able to all of this. And somehow we're kind of proud to do it for very little money. Yeah. Which is uh, weird because... There is always this belief, you know, that um, the the owner of the business is not making enough money and you're securing your work by donating hours into it. Yeah. And so do you feel like you're uh, – is it common to feel in these workplaces like your work is unstable or that it's uh, it can be easily taken away as well if you if you arc up or say something? Well, that, that on one side, yes. And on the other side, you also have this other cultural, like there is enough work, like you don't like it, just get out and find another one. Yeah. So what does it make you feel about staying in the hospitality industry? Well, I'm planning my way out. Like okay. I, I'm on my way out. Yeah. There is, it gets to a point, I guess, if you're a chef or doing career or whatever, if you want to do career chefing, that's great, but that's a lot too too much pressure for me and not enough money. Yeah. Um, it gets to a point in life that you have to decide if you're going to work, you know, 60 hours a week and not bring enough money to actually justify your absence with your family. Yeah. Um. Or you're going to go and work and pack trucks, for example, that you could pay about the same amount of money for laboring without needing a trade, mm. um, without having much responsibility. And you work from six o'clock in the morning until two o'clock in the afternoon. You kind of get to see your kids and yeah. see your wives because keeping a family life alongside with hospital, it's quite hard. Really hard. Yeah. Sarah, I'm curious to know, you say you're now trying to work your way out of hospitality industry when you initially began your career were you encouraged by the romanticized no absolutely no i was encouraged by a market that needed that like me like many migrants like kitchens kitchens and small businesses in australia provide 80 percent of the workplaces wow it's not the big companies Mm. it's the little the little small business, small and medium businesses that they do. And the most of jobs that you can grab when you don't speak English is washing dishes. Mm. That's a really, it's it's one of the reasons as well that, you know, it's an obscure industry if you may, because it's, it's, it's very full with people who are transient. Like, you know, the not permanent people are coming to the kitchens. That's normal job that you grab, you know, to get a waiter or dishy or bussy in, in, in a bar. You know, when, when your visa is not really that permanent or when you can only work 20 hours a week and those places are providing, you know, in a student visa, you can only work 20 hours a week. Yeah. And those places provide for, you know, half in cash, half on the other side. You can manage to do a little bit more hours and actually pay your way. Yeah. So it's a place where you get a lot of migrant workers as well. Mm. And especially in the kitchen, particularly the migrants that they don't really come in with really good English. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of people inside that they don't really know their rights. 
Yeah, and I guess it's also really hard to share correct information in those kinds of workplaces when you have lots of people working on shift, lots of people with um, you know English as a second language. It must make it really hard to to organize or to challenge. Um, I guess. Oh, um, absolutely! Like when you're on a visa, you don't really want to challenge. Like all of this mm. stuff of like this cash in hand thing. It's like a double edged sword, I guess, for the students that they can only work twenty hours a week and with twenty hours a week, no workplace really wants to hire you because that's like a casual position it's 25 hours a week to have a permanent part-time um you know so you don't really want to pay as well as a business you don't really want to pay casual load to a person that is just starting casual load is mostly for a person who's already been trained and it's coming in to do a few hours a week yeah you know yeah um so it leaves the international student in that gray area when he needs to work a little bit more yeah and that provides for cheap labor to, you know, owners. And that also means that, you know, if you've got a workforce, the micro workforce, that it's keeping the wages low. Yes. It's difficult for the uh, citizens or permanent residents with full working rights to be able to raise their pays or to claim for their entitlements, really. Yeah. Yeah, I see. And so um, what's what's been some of the... Has there been any positive workplace, I guess, that you've, that you've experienced where it, where it has worked well? Uh, or has it been on the, on the whole? There is arrangements that they have worked well and there's places that they've been happy places to work. You see, hospitality has another side, which is like most of us, I guess, that we work hospital was because it was a place that didn't feel like you were working. You work really, really hard. Yeah. But you don't have this, like office, school-like, formal, mm. you know, that other jobs would have, even though we have strict hierarchies inside the kitchen. Yeah. Um, I used to like to say, you know, I get, I put on a a, a chef coat and mm. it's and it's like wearing pyjamas. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it is, it's big pants, it's grocery pants, you know, this big coat that you goes inside of you, you get splashed with sauce, you get to swear in the thing, it doesn't really matter if you drop stuff, you throw things, you are a bit of a misfit, you know, and you're yeah. allowed to be that. Yeah. And it's a bit fun. So it can be a safe and fun place. It is. A f- yeah. It can be a safe and fun place and places that they're run properly and that they give enough. Sometimes it's not, most of the time it's actually not about money, it's about having shorter shifts. Yeah. Yep. You know, and... Um, and, and having more workers to do the thing and actually yeah. allow people to take their holidays. Yeah. Because that's a very common form of uh, workplace. Abuse, uh, I guess. Ab- yeah. Abuse of wage theft, really. Yeah. The, the most common ones that I found is like working on a salary and not being counted my extra hours and mm. therefore never getting that time in lieu, never mm. having a way to record it, to ask for it. Uh, super that doesn't get paid, that's a very common one. Mm. Um, holidays that you cannot take because there's anyone to replace you. Mm. Yeah. Um, Gabrielle, like do th- these practices that Sarah has been telling us about, um, based on what you've you've heard, how common is her experience, and uh, from what you see coming across your desk? Thanks, Gemma. I'd say that Sarah's experience, unfortunately, is not unique. Um, wage theft really is endemic across the Australian workforce and across a number of industries. Uh, you know, even so far as. Um, extending to white-collar workers, and there's been Mm. a lot of commentary around that recently. Mm. Uh, But I'd say that it's definitely more common in industries like the hospitality industry, which attracts um, generally more vulnerable workers. uh, And by vulnerable workers, that that includes temporary migrant workers, young people, low-skilled workers, People who are generally less likely to know what their rights are, mm. how to enforce them, mm. um, and are maybe more 
I guess, uh, in need of staying in the job mm. um, because they may be facing some other form of disadvantage. Mm, okay. Yeah, it sounds like it's obviously a really challenging job then as a solicitor, um, which we're going to hear a little more about after um, this brief uh, break. You're back on Done By Law, the program that speaks about the legal issues affecting you on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, you can listen online, 3cr.org.au as well. Um, you're with Daniel and Gemma, and we're talking about wage theft uh, with, with some special guests. And we're now going to continue our discussion um, about yeah. what are the options you might have uh, when you need to challenge something in your workplace or can you speak to someone? Is there, is there actually something you can do that the law might be able to help you with? Yeah, is it is it Gabrielle from your perspective? Like I suppose we're interested in knowing how does wage theft thrive? What are the kinds of uh, practices that 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 are in place which means that you that you see these things happen time and time again? Thanks Gemma. I think there are a number of intersecting reasons for why wage theft seems to be thriving in mm. our economy. Um, to touch on a few uh, first and foremost is the visa structure for certain um, temporary visas. Uh, Sarah mentioned before that student visa holders are only able to work 20 hours per week or 40 hours per fortnight during semester and unlimited hours on their holidays. Uh, many employers know this and still ask students to work longer than their 40 hours per fortnight. Mm. Uh a student who does that may be in breach of their visa mm. and may face serious consequences if the Department of Immigration finds out. Mm. And so a lot of students and other temporary visa holders who are worried about their visa and, and want to stay in Australia are too afraid to complain and would rather take the low wages and take the poor working conditions than make a complaint. Mm. Another factor, I think, is deunionisation. There's less union presences in presence in the workplace, um, ensuring that workplace laws are being abided by. Mm. Uh, and employment law is very complicated. Uh, mm. It's a complex jurisdiction uh, with multiple acts uh, and multiple options for applicants to bring their claims forward. So, for example, uh, if you've been underpaid, you have the option to go to the magistrate's court, the federal circuit court, the federal court, uh, and many uh, underpayment claims involve other employment law issues such as unfair dismissal, unfair treatment at work, safety issues at work. Yeah. Uh, and some of those claims need to be taken to other jurisdictions such as the Fair Work Commission, VCAT, the Australian Human Rights Commission. So it's very difficult for individuals to know where to go. The best place to, to do that. And it's cost prohibitive. Um, yeah. All of these um, options cost money. Yeah. And people who have been underpaid generally don't have huge high disposable incomes no. that they can um, spend trying to file their application, find the employer yeah. um, and hopefully get an order. Yeah, yeah. I can see that from what Sarah was saying before, it doesn't strike you as the kind of thing you then feel like shelling out money to try and um, navigate a system that you still well, have right. faith in. <laughs> and, and to add, many of the employers who are engaging in wage theft are using this as a business model. Yes. It's not their first time. Mm. Um, they have found loopholes in the system that enable them to uh, not pay people properly. Mm. And it can be very difficult to find employers. Mm. Um, if, if a business is not thriving, it's very easy for an employer to deregister 
um, their business and um, disappear. So there's a lot of disincentives for employees to chase their wages. So what what can workers do, I guess, if if they're, um, uh, I guess, Find, finding that they've, they've, they, they really want to be able to follow up some wages that they think are unpaid, what, what would you suggest the best steps to be? I think it's really important for workers to keep a copy of their contract or any documents that they sign when they first start their employment and review the contract as a first step. It's also really important to understand which modern award or enterprise agreement you're covered by mm. uh, and review those documents Uh ensure that you're getting pay slips and that your pay slips are accu- accurately recording all of the hours that you've worked. Uh, uh, um, sorry to interrupt, but how might you go about finding your award and your document? It sounds like a very um, mm. Or if it's simple... cash in hand or if you haven't got those documents with you, is that the end of the road? No, absolutely not. It does make things more complicated and the modern award system is no doubt compl- complex. You know, somebody who works in hospitality might be covered by the hospitality industry award, the fast food industry award or the restaurant industry award. And even as lawyers, sometimes we um, have a lot of difficulty Mm. trying to work out which award a client's covered by. That's information that should be provided to you when you start your employment, but we know in many cases it's not. Mm. Um, So you can contact the Fair Work Ombudsman and tell them about your job and give them a description of what you do. And they should be able to tell you which award you're covered by or if there is an enterprise bargaining agreement that covers your employment. Um, You can go to your union if you're a union member or come to a community legal centre and we will help you (laughs) work out which award covers you. Um, And you can also make complaints to the Fair Work Ombudsman, including anonymous complaints. Okay. So there are options. Some t- good, there good, are good so tips many options and so there. many issues we wanted to um, continue discussing yeah. tonight, but unfortunately we've hit the end of our show on Done by Law at 3CR and we've got to get out of here and leave the space open for the West Pop- Voice by West Pop- Voice of West Papua show. So um, stay tuned next week for Done by Law and thank you. Thank to- you so much, Sarah and Gabrielle Watson-Munro from West Justice. We really appreciate you coming in and sharing your expertise and stories. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.